So I promise that I won't cut in any S Club 7 into this week's podcast, as I did with our friend Brendan a couple of weeks ago. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I bet he loved that. Because, uh, well, he didn't know until afterwards. I mean, even if he did listen to the show, I don't know. We had this whole conversation about S Club 7 and about why they'd never been on Live Aid or Band Aid or whatever it's called. And uh, and then afterwards, I cut in like little bits of S Club 7 tracks throughout the whole thing because he's a big fan, I hear. What, of S Club 7? Oh, yeah. No, he's pulling your leg. He's got everything they've ever done. Rubbish. I don't yeah. believe <laughs> Yeah, no. And uh, and All Saints. <laughs> I'm going to rib him about that. And Girls Aloud, I hear as well. He has a big collection of girl bands. <laughs> oh, now I know it is a wind-up. So, yeah, so I did actually cut in a bunch of S Club 7 tracks into the podcast last time, so I promise I won't do that this time. And so you, you, you've got to find uh, another music that I like that you can then chuck in. It's the anniversary of Kirsty McColl's death coming up on the 18th of December. Do you know, I loved that girl. I thought she was so talented. Yeah, so did I. In fact, I have a little weep every 18th of December, and I always just play Kirsty tracks really? on the 18th of December. Yeah, yeah. I have it actually marked in my calendar. It sends me a reminder, just in case I forget. As an homage. As an homage, yeah. Mm. No, I love Kirsty McColl. Mm. I think it's people of a certain age. I think so. Um, was she on Stiff Records? Uh, she was on Stiff Records, I think, mm. originally, yeah. Do you, do you remember Stiff's tagline? Not off the top of my head. Are you, are you, you're going to beep stuff out later, aren't you? Yeah. Well, so it, the Stiff Records later tagline was, if it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a fuck. That's a good tagline. Great line, isn't it? I don't think I'm even going to bleep that out. Fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did I say? You... <laughs> yeah, so and we were talking about who we'd have on as like an old farts miserable band aid as well. I thought Morrissey would be a start. Oh yeah, he is he is a Mizog. Do they know it's miserable Christmas? Yeah. Yeah. Who cares if it's Christmas? Exactly. Yeah. Who gives a flying Yeah, exactly. If it's Christmas. Yeah, I I gotta say, Morrissey was never never really my cup of tea. I, I kind of liked a few of the Smiths singles, but I was not a album Smiths man, you know. I came to the Smiths a bit late when they'd already re-released or released and then re-released loads of stuff because they were always doing that. They were always making different compilations. I've, I am I've, I'm embarrassed to say that is the story of my life. I come to a lot of bands late, so I I think I was the last one ever to get into Tom Waits. Do you like Tom Waits? Oh no. Really? No. Oh, I love that guy. And and also, of course, you know, some of these, the elder generation, they also appear in films. So he is in The Book of Eli. Have you seen that film? No. Denzel Washington. Still no. Really? No, I'm oh, totally Andy, clueless. Andy, you need to get out. I need to watch something that hasn't just got apes in it. Exactly, yeah. It's an apocalyptic, how do I say this, apocalyptic tale where he seems to be like a nomad wandering through this rather grey world um, and uh, Gary Oldman's in it. And basically he has the last remaining copy of the Bible and he's trying to get to um, the west coast of America in order to reprint the Bible because they... That's part of the story is that one of the reasons for the uh, the final war was religion. So yeah, it doesn't sound the way I describe it doesn't sound great, but it is a great film, lovely, beautifully cinematic. You know, I'm not going to be rushing out and watching that one to be honest. <laughs> not for me description. <laughs> do you do you like Denzel? Yeah, wait, I'll watch him if he's on. Have you seen Man on Fire? No. Oh, God, that is one of my favourites. Now, I've been put down by several film lovers who go, oh, no, no, you've got to watch the original. No, not me. This is, I think it's it's not Ridley Scott, it's Tony Scott that did it. And it's very, well, Tony Scott-esque, you know, those kind of uh, over-pumped colours and um, almost 
uh, pop video type filming, but it is such a great film. I, I often have a little tear at the end of it. I watched and rewatched her this week. Have you seen that? I have not seen that yet, and it is definitely one on my radar. Yeah, it should be on your list. Yeah. Because I saw it a few months ago, and then I was in Oslo this last week, and just took a load of things on a, you know, on my, on my laptop just to mm. watch while I was there. Mm. And I watched it and fell asleep because I was really tired. And on the plane or in no, the no, this was this was while I was there in the yeah. uh, in the Airbnb. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, oh, and I was grumpy with myself for falling asleep. So I wound it back and then started watching again and then fell asleep a little bit later. So I actually watched it three times, really. It played through three times. Doesn't it have some uh, social media overtones and connotations in it? Well, it's about all kinds of stuff, really. It's about um, people say that it's about our relationship with technology. Mm-hmm. And there's a very big component of that. But it's also about relationships in general particularly relationships or maybe even distant relationships Mm. um between people now which you know use technology yeah um but it's a very 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 sweet film and the performances are incredible joaquin phoenix isn't it yeah joaquin phoenix is great um but scarlett johansson is just amazing and you don't even see her yeah she's the she's the voice of the computer right uh, and I was really sceptical. And I've seen people comment on it going, you know, well, I'm not going to make any spoilers, but, you know, why would you want to watch you know, some sad old bastard falling in love with his laptop? Oh. Um, but it is so much more than that. You know, and people that people that have said, have said that I think need to get out more or they need to watch it again or have a bit more of an open mind. I think it's a wonderful film. Um, the She wasn't the original voice. What's the girl called that was in... Um... Minority Report. Uh, I don't know. English actress. I don't uh, know. Let me re- look it up while I'm talking to you. Original voice. But they say, in fact, um, Spike Jones, the director, said that it was always intended that the actor that did the voice on set was not going to be the final voice. Right. Um, which I thought was interesting. I've read some things about it and she was on set the whole time, but she never actually interacted with Joaquin Phoenix, um, on set. She was always like in a sound booth somewhere else. In fact, he didn't see her throughout oh, really? the whole of the shooting. It was, they kept them separate. I think they do a lot of films like that, don't they? Well, especially, um, cartoons and, um, things like that. And then when it came to actually doing Scarlett Johansson's role, things hadn't worked out quite the way that, you know, maybe they thought and maybe her interpretation of the role brought something different to it. So they went back and they reshot some scenes. I, I love Spike Jones. Um, have you ever seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? No, I don't think I've seen any films that you've ever seen. <laughs> really? Well, listen, if you like Spike Jones, you'll like this. Spike Jones did this film. It's called Eternal Spotless Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Jim Carrey and uh, which is, what's the girl at uh, English Rose? Um, I'll find out in a minute. I don't know, but I would probably have avoided it just because it has Jim Carrey in it. Funny you should say that because you'd imagine, oh, it's a Jim Carrey film. It's going to be slapstick. It is nothing like that at all. In fact, it's a very heartfelt love story. Um, but it's a great premise to a film because... What happens is he meets, I'm going to find out her name now, uh, Eternal Sunshine. I'm, I'm on IMDb as we're speaking, funny enough. Kate Winslet. So he meets Kate Winslet on a beach and he just starts chatting to her and they start a relationship. And then the relationship deteriorates and she goes and gets her mind erased. Now, not her entire mind, only the bits that contain Jim Carrey. So he doesn't know what's going on with this, but what the company that raises your mind does is they send they send a little postcard to everyone that you know and says it says she has had her mind erased. Please do not mention anything to do with this couple again. And then of course he, I don't know how he finds out, but he finds out and he decides to do the same thing. But what is really clever is 
the way that Spike Jones does the special effects because it's as if you can see memories that are literally being deleted from his mind as he's thinking about them, but it's not done with CGI. So it really is a, a, a such a clever film. You should you should watch it. Yeah, Try I'll it. put a link in the show notes as well to the IMDb post. Have you been keeping up with our conversations about burgers recently, John Davy? Tell me more. I know you don't listen to the podcast very often. Oh, no, I do. But we we do talk about all the most important issues of the day on this podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. Not as important as something on the BBC. Oh, no. So what? what's the burger conversation? It's important. No, well, you see, I've had this little bit of a, a bee in my burger bonnet. Mm. Just about silly burgers. And it all started off with the, the whole brioche burger in Brighton thing. Oh, but right. that seems to have spread madness across the country because now it's really hard, apparently, to find a burger that isn't in some kind of silly construction. Right. And, you know, there's all kinds of burgers. You know, I talked about a Yorkshire pudding burger last week. Really? Yeah. Oh, I couldn't think of anything worse. Um, so, yeah, so I've been rambling, some people would say, about... Why can't we have burgers anymore? Why can't they just be normal burgers like, you know, burgers should be? Mm. Why do we have to kind of improve on them in these strange kind of ways? Mm. And uh, people seem to have got behind this because they send me links now. <laughs> what burger links? They send me burger links, yeah. It's amazing. Half of my Twitter feed tends to be full now of people sending me tweets about burgers. Did you you know, I think you might have met Dot Lung. She um, does all social media for reasons to be creative. And she posted a picture of a burger recently, which was quite scary. It was a burger that had been released in Japan for um, McDonald's. And the bun, the actual burger and the contents were all black. Mm. Honestly, it looked... Ugh, revolting well somebody sent me a link this week to one on metro.co.uk it was the ultimate christmas burger contains a five bird roast venison and deep fried sprouts i'll put a link in the show notes and the word ultimate is in all caps and it's in it's in all caps for a reason and it says this is it we finally found a burger that's gone too far we've lived through the double donut burger have you seen that? A burger in a donut. Oh, I have seen that. Yeah. Oh, dear, yeah. The Yorkshire Pud Burger and the KFC Double Down. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> um, it says here, this is just indecent. Introducing the Solita Christmas Burger. Brace yourself. Between two innocent-looking toasted brioche buns, because it had to be brioche, didn't it? It couldn't just be your normal poppy seed. Right. Oh, no. Or even, you know, I had a burger yesterday, and it was soft and squidgy, but it wasn't brioche. No, it was just bread. It doesn't have to be sweet. It doesn't have to be brioche. Anyway, it says here, you'll find a sizable slice of Aldi five-bird roast and a six-ounce Angus beef and venison patty. And to cushion all that meat, you'll also find deep-fried sprouts, stuffing fried in panko, which is Japanese-style breadcrumbs, chestnut pieces, cranberry and port sauce and turkey gravy. And to round it all off, they've stuck a candied pig in a blanket on the top. Oh, my God. Talk about Heart Attack City. When will this madness ever cease? I've just sent you a link, actually, of this black burger. I want you to have a look at it and tell me what your initial impression is the second you see it. Burger King in Japan unveils new black burger. Got it. That looks awful. Doesn't it? It just looks like it's been cremated. Well, Australian MasterChef is one of my favourite programmes, and over the last (laughs) couple of episodes, they've been doing a lot with squid ink. Oh, really? And apparently squid ink is a thing. I wouldn't be at all surprised if this burger wasn't made with squid ink at some point. I, uh, many years ago, I was working in uh, Ibiza in Mallorca, and I was invited to go to lunch with uh, a Spanish guy. He's a manager. And uh, he took me to this place. I kid you not, it was like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the arches at London Bridge, where it's just like a load of guys have rented out the arch to do car repairs. And Mm. so 
we're walking along and I'm thinking, where has he brought me? And all of a sudden, this tiny little wooden door, he's opened this door. It did look like a car repair place. And we walked in and there's a restaurant in there with loads of people. And I said, listen, you know, you're you're the Mallorquin guy. You you choose. I, I don't want to choose anything. I said, I want to eat whatever you choose, but I love tapas. So he got squid in black ink. And I'd never seen anything like it, and I'd never eaten anything like it, but it was just glorious. I often think if you go with the local, then you'll get a better deal. That's what I always do when I'm with uh, Tila, when I'm in Germany. I just say, what is typical? And then he will choose something for me. Well, we went to Japan last year, and we have our friend Satoshi that always acts as a fixer, in a way. And, yeah. you know, and a guide and everything else. And some of the little places that he took us to were just amazing. Yeah. There was this first night where, I mean, I was sort of jet lagged and off the plane, so I didn't really feel like going out, but he took us to this sushi place and literally there was one counter which you could fit maybe half a dozen people sitting at this counter and the guy, the sushi chef stood behind it. And that was mm-hmm. it. That was the whole restaurant. And mm-hmm. there was no menu. He just made you things and gave them to you and, you know, you ate them. Yeah. And some of the, the sushi rolls that he made were amazing. Um, some things were a little bit hard for a Westerner to, to stomach. Mm. Um, just, you know, the cleaved open fish head was a particular non-favorite. <laughs> um, so I didn't particularly kind of care for that, but it was just such an amazing experience. And then the, the last night that we were there, I'd actually said to Satoshi, not a big fan of eel. And I thought I'd made myself clear, but then he took us to this restaurant that only served eel. Oh, really? And again, there was one guy, there was, I think there must have been four tables in this little restaurant. And from the outside, you'd never know that it was there. Right. Unless you read Japanese. I mean, it was literally like, uh, just, you went through a door and you were in, like every restaurant. But this was really, really different. And the guy just cooked eel. So it was like rice bowls with eel. And the craziest thing was deep fried eel backbones. Oh. I'm not Which, sure if I'm an eel person, actually. No, you know, I'm not a big fan of eel, but the the backbones were pretty nice. They were a bit kind of like Japanese equivalent of pork scratchings, in a way. They were kind of oh, really? crunchy, but a little bit chewy. Do you know, it's funny uh, that you should say that. Uh, we have recently went to uh, a restaurant in Richmond called Al Bocon de Vino, and they do that. You don't get a choice. You walk in, and literally, as you sit down, they say, do you drink red wine or do you drink white wine? And of course, I like red. Joe likes white, and that's the only choice you've got. Everything else is what the chef decides to cook, and it, you really do feel like you're on the continent because you'll go in at say noon, and you don't come out until five, and you don't feel like you've been in there five hours, and you've had many, many courses that he's made. So, for example, Andy, what's really lovely is, you know, if I said to you, "Oh, come down round and we'll, I'll do ravioli." You'd, you'd expect a big plate of ravioli. But what you get here is you'll get a, a one course would be say three pieces of ravioli, and of course a big bloat. You kind of go, "Oh, that's not enough." But once you've had eight or ten courses, you go, "Wow, this you know I've really eaten a lot." But it's over a period of time, and actually, you know, talking just as a side point, I think that. In the Western, well, actually, no, not Western. I think we, as a nation, our island, has become very used to eating quickly. Whereas when you are in Spain or Italy or, or or somewhere like that, often the meal takes a long time. And I think that that is, A, it's much nicer socially, and B, it's better for you. You know, so this meal that lasts, you know, several hours... You don't come out feeling bloated, but you feel like you've had such a lovely time. You know, the atmosphere is great, and, of course, you're with friends and wine. Yeah, you should try it. If you're ever in Richmond, it's called Albocon de Vino. I'm just trying to think. There's a name for that kind of service. It's almost like a, a tasting thing where you yeah. get lots of... There is a name for it because they've mentioned it on MasterChef. Right. Uh, but I'm too thick to remember. No, I, and I've got to say, I love that going with, going with the flow. You know, I, I found many times in my life when I've just gone with the flow, it's been a much better experience. Well, I don't like, I mean, I think it's because I've been, you know, trying to be a little bit healthier recently, but I don't like that 
feeling stuffed over full feeling anymore and mm. you know when i yesterday had a burger lunchtime walked out of the place i was full yeah. you know i felt really full i mean i suppose drinking you know a can of root beer didn't really help either but when sometimes when you have these meals and they're just like little bits of something i mean when i was in oslo last week i went to an argentinian restaurant um brilliant place had three dishes you know like almost like tapas style dishes that kind of came over a period of time, three or four, I can't remember exactly how many, and they were all delicious. There wasn't much food, but I came away feeling satisfied, but I didn't feel over full. Mm. Much nicer. I think since I've read Fast Food Nation, I've kind of steered away from those kind of places. Have you read that book? No, I haven't read that book. It's, do you know, it's funny, when you mention the book to people and you look at the cover, and this is never ju- judge a book by its cover, um, people automatically assume it's the, oh, it's all about getting fat and not being healthy and stuff like that. It's not about that at all. It's about, it's the journey from the cow in the field to you standing at the counter. And therefore, all of the steps in between, the abattoir, the uh, logistics of getting it across the country, the deals that the American Meat Association, or whatever they're called, they... they uh, have with the burger places and all sorts of stuff. It is fascinating to the point where I was coming back from Arsenal one, uh, on a night game about 11 o'clock at night reading the book. And I literally felt like standing up in the train carriage and going, right, stop everyone. Listen to what I've got to tell you. This is what it says in this book. You know, it's so powerful. I didn't do that, by the way, but um, I felt like it. It's a great book to read. People would have taken you off at the next station. I'm sure, yeah. I don't normally read Metro, because I'm not normally in London, um, but they seem to share quite a lot of my thoughts about these stupid burgers, because they've been writing about them a lot recently. Oh, really? Uh, They wrote about the Yorkshire pudding burger is a thing, and that it's actually not that annoying. And I can see that. We talked about this last week. Yorkshire pudding I can kind of go for. Um, Here's one, though. The beef stroganoff burger is the winter (gasps) hug you've been waiting for. I'll put links in the show notes. <laughs> I'm speechless. Yeah, well, yeah, as you can tell, I am. Completely speechless. Dear, dear. No, I haven't seen Fast Food Nation or read Fast Food Nation, but I have seen um, Super Size Me. Oh, yeah. So Super Size Me was the kind of second step to that, I guess, the natural evolution. He's uh, uh, Morgan Spurlock, isn't it? He, yes. He wrote um, Fast Food Nation. I think that got him on the map. And then, of course, I mean, some of these things are shock tactics, but I like the first book. Supersize Me was a bit more, uh, I don't know, I think that was to shock rather than inform. So, yeah, I prefer the, the first one. Well, the most recent thing I saw was actually on the TV, and it was a few months ago about this fitness professional. I mean, I think he was a trainer, the kind of guy that, you know, had a six-pack. Mm. That didn't come from bargain much, boots. Much like us. Much, much like us. Well, I'm working my way towards it. Mm. And, uh, he decided that he was going to spend a year, I think it was a year, or maybe even six months getting fat. And he would just literally eat shite. Mm. Um, and try to get fat, try to put on, I can't remember how much it was now. Um, and then lose it again. Cause he wanted to be in the position where he could really understand weight loss from his client's point of view. You know, because yeah. he'd always been a fit guy. Mm-hmm. Fat people come along and say, I want to lose weight. He couldn't really understand that it was, you know, not just about, well, stop eating pizza then, you daft bugger. Mm-hmm. So he did. He got fat and then spent, I think it was a year, really, you know, getting back to his original form. And along the way, he was amazed, not just at the, like, the physical changes, but like the mental changes as well and how eating bad food affected people and was so addictive you know the oh, fact yeah. that it was you know he needed that whether it is what is it sugar or salt or yeah. whatever whatever the hit is that, that you get when you eat junk food amazing mm. well do you know i don't know if you know this andy we've uh, i might have had a conversation with you about it um joe and i have recently become foster carers and uh, interestingly um one of the so we have two girls at the moment. One of the girls said, "I think I've been losing weight since I've been here," and 
uh, you guys don't eat normal food. And we said, oh, that's interesting. What What is normal food? And she said, burgers. I said, hmm, you might, maybe you're dropping weight because the, the colour of the food is green that you're eating. I don't know if that's uh, <laughs> that's true or not, but I do think that when you look back to what our parents made us, there was n- very little processed, uh, and I think that is the problem nowadays. What's interesting about your story about this um, this guy who is the fitness guy is, yes, I, I agree, it's an interesting exercise. However, I don't think by making yourself fat and then proving that you can become thin again is actually getting inside the mind of why people overindulge or they eat the wrong foods or whatever. And I think, you know, there are so many more reasons than that. You know, um, often processed or fast food is cheaper um, than... Actually, maybe I'm wrong there. No, I think I think often I think often it is, and that's certainly an argument that I've seen people use in the past. And do you know, actually, when I think about it, because Joe Joe would be better at this than me. She she would say no, it's not cheaper because if you feed a family of five and you go out and buy the ingredients and then cook them, it will often be cheaper. I think. uh, Let me let me revisit that. It's not cheaper. I think it's easier. And that is the the main one of the main reasons. Well, I want to talk today about just things being on demand. Yeah, an interesting segue there because I think actually our life, um, our lives, we are looking for the quickest and easiest all the time. I think actually we we need to slow down a bit, go back to the way it was. <laughs> Let me take a moment just to thank our first sponsor because mm-hmm. it's Gather Content. All right. Gather Content helps people who build websites to work with their clients to plan, organize, and collaborate on web content. So I bet everyone who's ever made a website for a client or for their company, they're going to know what I mean when I say that planning, gathering, organizing, and collaborating on content, that's one of the trickiest parts of any project. Because mm. people, they email you content in Word or Excel or oh, sometimes even in PowerPoint documents. And you can't blame them for that because those are the applications that regular people use day to day. But then we have to shift through what's often multiple documents and cut and paste what's useful out of them. Then you've got to keep track of everything. And people send you the same file twice just in case you might have lost it. And you've got to store them. So your Dropbox ends up overflowing with client content. Mm. And then there's finding a way to collaborate over changes because I often edit clients' copy for them and we write a lot as well. So then I've got to tell them what we've changed and all of that can take longer than designing the website. And that's where Gather Content comes in because it's a web application that keeps all of your content in one place. You can collaborate with clients on changes and get approval when you need it with Gather Content's reminders and due dates. And Gather Content breaks content down to help you guide your clients and copywriters through what needs to be written. And when you're done, export that approved content directly into your CMS using one of their plugins or API. So they've set up a special page just for listeners of the show. It's unfinished.bz slash gather content. And even better, if you sign up through that page and you use the discount code unfinished, you'll get, wait for this, 20% off your subscription to gather content forever. Cool. Not a limited offer forever. And do you know what else I like about other content? That's generous, by the way. It's very generous. And Mm. they don't just make software. They care about helping people too. And one of the ways that they do is by writing content as well. And they've launched a 56-page guide called Content Strategy for Agencies. And it walks you through exactly what you need to do to put content at the very heart of every project that you work on. And what they say is they promise that it will transform the way you sell, plan, and deliver web projects. Don't know about that, but... It's a big claim. Read the guide. Judge for yourself. You can download your copy from unfinished.bz slash content guide. And best of all, it's free. So thanks, Gather Content. Yeah, absolutely. That is good. And I see that they do a 30-day trial. Yes, they do. Which is cool. I was listening to John Gruber's The Talk Show podcast this week. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you listen to? No, I'm not aware of it, actually. Oh, 
brilliant. It's one of the, you know, my favorite podcasts of the week. And he was talking amongst other things with Dave Whiskus about the announcement of the next Bond movie Spectre. Right. And also the Star Wars teaser trailer that was released last week. You should listen to the talk show. Is it Daring Fireball? It's the guy from Daring Fireball, exactly. Uh-huh. And there was something that jumped out at me. They were talking about how scarce, and I've been struggling to find a word, but I can only think of scarce, that first Star Wars film was. Because it came out in 1977. I can remember it. Did you queue up outside the cinema in 77? Um, not for Star Wars, but I did queue up for many other films. I can remember the queue sneaking round Corby Town Centre with people trying to get into uh, the scabby Odeon Cinema that used to be next to Sainsbury's in the middle of Corby Town Centre. Uh, I miss those scabby cinemas, though. <laughs> and the only way that you could watch Star Wars then was in the cinema, and they, they showed it for a long time. I remember it was on for months. Um and then it did the rounds a couple more times, but it wasn't freely available. Mm. You know, now, you know, you watch a film that comes out in the summer and then you can buy it before Christmas. Yeah. You know, I did exactly that with Dawn of the Planet of the Apes recently. Mm. You know, that was out in what, July, late November. You can buy it on iTunes or on Blu-ray or DVD. Mm-hmm. And I was doing some research about this and the first VHS copy of Star Wars A New Hope. It didn't come out until 1982. How many years later was that? Well, that was five years after it came out in the cinema. And then really? it was only for rental in a video shop. Do you remember video no. shops? Yeah, I do. <laughs> used to go. And I can remember, you know, there'd be, I don't know, eight copies of Star Wars or something in, uh, you know, in the local blockbuster. Yeah. And you might have to put your name down for, for it on the waiting list. Um, but you couldn't buy it for years. <laughs> so what I, people used to do, because the, the, the videos used to say not for, you know, for video rental only, not for resale. So what people used to do that the, um, the video shop owners figure this out that they could, if they weren't allowed to sell it to you, they could rent it to you for life. So some people paid like, you know, a hundred quid to get Star Wars on video. Really? Yeah. My God. I know, it's amazing. And I, th- I don't know, I couldn't find out when the first actual kind of retail copy came out, but I imagine it wasn't until much later when you could probably get a trilogy. I think that's probably what happened. I don't think they released it, it until you could get the box set of all the three films. Do you know, <clears throat> it's interesting you, you say this and how long it took. Uh, this was like uh, Clockwork Orange, because Clockwork Orange came out, and it immediately got banned. And because of its banned status, it became cult. And because it was cult, it was like, almost like, oh, can you get an underground copy of these things? But that took absolutely years and years and years to come out as well. Well, I was wondering whether this kind of scarcity, the fact that you couldn't see it very often. I mean, Lord knows when the first time Star Wars actually went on TV. Um, Probably by that point, people had their own uh, V8, what are they called? VCRs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somewhere, I actually think that I still have a copy of Star Wars that I taped off the telly. (laughs) Somewhere. Do 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 you remember you... Well, listen... Andy, I'm sure you were way more refined than I was, but I can distinctly remember having a reel-to-reel tape recorder and it had a wired microphone, which didn't look like a microphone. It looked more like, um, I guess, like a walkie-talkie on the end of this wire and kind of propping it up against the speaker of the TV and putting a big cushion behind it so that you didn't have any... uh, ambient noise from your mum walking in going what are you doing and recording top of the pops because i couldn't afford the records well i was too young to buy them i guess i couldn't afford the records and you know you just wanted to get the latest slade record or whatever it was so that you could just listen to it in your bedroom well i watched guardians of the galaxy this week as well 
yeah. Which is actually, um, somebody was talking to me about this last weekend, um, and was saying that it could be this generation's Star Wars. People yes. come out of the cinema f- feeling that sort of same feeling. My daughter absolutely loves it. I thought it was a good film. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the best spacey Marvel film I've ever seen, but I, I did enjoy it. One of the reasons my daughter loves that film is the cassette. Ah, now I was going to mention this because I can remember those kind of mixed cassette tapes that you used to make in the yeah. 80s. Yeah. I can remember taping music from the top 40 on the radio pretty much every week as well. Do you remember home taping is killing music? Yeah. That slogan. Not the record company. Oh, no. Just yeah. the fact that a few spotty kids were recording things off top of the pops. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny. It was the same way that I used to record films off the telly. Because mm. if you wanted to cut the ads out, you had to quickly press and hold the pause button while it was recording. That's right. Because you didn't want to record whoever was doing the charts at that point. Simon Bates. Yeah, exactly. Did he ever do the charts? I can't remember. No, I know, but on top of the pops, you you would be sitting there trying to make sure that you didn't get um, Simon Bates or whoever it was introducing the record, and you'd be if he talked over the intro of the record, you'd be looking at the screen like, "Why did you do that?" Oh, I used to hate that. Yeah, used to completely hate that. But yeah, you had to set set it to record, and then when the bit that you didn't want to record, you would ho- press and hold the pause button. Yeah, which is exactly what I did with this copy of Star Wars that I've got on VHS knocking about somewhere. I don't even have a VCR anymore. Going back to uh, my daughter, she came up to my office and we were just clearing out a box in the loft and I had one of those old Sony Discmans. Uh, Now she's 16 and she went, Daddy, what, what is that? And I said, oh, it's called a Discman. I said, you know, in the old days we would get a CD and you'd put it in there and you'd listen to your, you know, music. Oh my God, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I went, we're going to throw it away. It's, you know, I used it like 30 years ago or something. She went, no, no, can I have it? So she has now got this Discman because it, I guess it's that retro feel. And I think that is one of the things about Guardians of the Galaxy is that that cassette is very retro looking and, you know, Kids are kind of, oh, my God, that is so cool, you know. Well, I was going to come on to music, but before I, before I forget, I just want to talk about VCRs for a minute, because this, mm. this is funny. Because when I went to school, we only had, like, two video cassette recorders in the whole school. Mm. And they used to wheel these things round on a trolley. So if you, yeah. were, in a, if you were in a kind of, I don't know, a geology, not geology. Uh, a geography class or a French class or there was a film to watch or something from the open university or whatever, they would wheel this video player. And mm-hmm. it was like something from space. We'd never seen yeah. it. Nobody had VCRs in their house at that point. Yeah. And, uh, and you'd watch it and then they'd wheel it out again. And it was really funny because I grew up in Corby, which is in the Midlands, and the jocks kept breaking into the school and nicking them. <laughs> so... You'd you turn up one day and the French teacher would go, I'm very sorry, but we cannot watch whatever it was today. Because, um, you know, the VCR has been stolen again. <laughs> and that's what would happen. And yeah, I suppose ultimately people did have them in their houses, particularly in Corby, because, you know, you kept nicking the one out of school. Everyone, everyone in Corby had them apart from the school. Oh, what a funny place that was. But, yeah, I remember having my first Walkman, you know, cassette Walkman. Yeah. Pretty much like the one. It wasn't an actual Walkman. I think it was probably one of those cheap knockoffs made by Alba that you oh, yeah, yeah. you bought in Dixon's at the time. I don't think I ever had a Sony Walkman. No, they were for the elite. Certainly not one of the originals. We can buy and listen to music now pretty much anytime, anywhere. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, the only time that you could buy music was on a Saturday when you went into town to go to the record shop. Yeah. He could listen to things on, you know, usually on the radio, but, and record off it. But you couldn't carry the music around. I mean, not for ages, not until you could get a Walkman. The only way that you could do it, I remember you used to go to the record shop and you would buy something on vinyl, come home, and you'd listen to it on your music center. I can remember it was, I was, it must have been about 14 years old before I had a record player in my bedroom at home. Yeah. I was 21 before we had a telephone in the house. 
I think that experience, you know, you used to get it home, sit there, listen to it over and over again. And sometimes, you know, you'd, you'd spend, you know, one pound 99 on an album because things were expensive back then. Yeah. You devour those show notes and or the, the sleeve notes and you'd know who the musicians were that played on every yeah, track. Absolutely. absolutely. But you know, it's interesting you say this because this is a nostalgia versus immediacy kind of debate. Really what you're talking about, I think, is an, is something that has disappeared from certainly my daughter's life is things like sleeve notes. Now, you know, if you look back to when you used to go to the record shop and you would stand there and say to the guy, can I listen to, you know, a little bit of this new album? And he would give you a set of headphones and you would stand by the desk while he put it on for you. You'd, you'd feel pretty cool because everyone's waiting for the headphones and you've got them. And then you'd be looking at the sleeve notes and you'd go, yeah, I'm going to buy this album. You get it home. It's a double gate sleeve. And there was a whole art behind those sleeves where, you know, I remember um, watching a documentary um, by, it's called Supermensch. And it's about a guy called Shep Gordon, who was uh, Alice Cooper's manager. And the first record that he brought out, Alice Cooper, they said he went he went to the record company and said, Right, when it comes out, we want the um actual inner sleeve to be a pair of knickers. And they went, Do you know how much that costs? And he went, Yeah, but it's different to everyone else. And that sleeve came out, the inner sleeve was a pair of knickers around the album. And you kind of think to yourself, all of that is lost. You know, we don't have that anymore. And of course, not only is it lost, now, or, or actually, we went through a period where we went from vinyl to CD. I think some people had mini disc as well, but now everything's digital. Where is all that art and and the sleeve notes and the information gone? You know, I guess you have to go online and look at it, and then it's not the same as being touchy feely anymore. Well, I suppose I'd never really thought about it, but there was that sleeve note information about maybe the lyrics were on there. Mm -hmm. um, certainly who played on the album would have been on there. And that kind of backup information was really there to, you know, just sort of just make you, allow you to do something, you know, give you something to do while you were listening to the tracks. Well, also it became currency at school, Andy, because you'd go to school and you'd go, oh, no, 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 that wasn't, Rob, um, you know, Robert Plant, that was uh, someone else. And you knew because you'd laboured over those sleeve notes. But I suppose the other thing which I hadn't really thought about before was when you were standing at the counter looking at this album, listening to a, you know, a track or two, and you had this thing in your hand. I mean, I can, I'm getting the, the goosebumps even just thinking about it now because there was a smell mm -hmm. also. There was some, there was a smell about a new album. You, know, you would actually, so if, the, if they were wrapped in plastic, you know, wrapped in cellophane, you would open it and there would be a smell around a new album. Mm. Um, and even if it wasn't like a double gatefold album cover, you would, that was playing, that artwork was playing a really big part in selling yeah. the album yeah. to you. Absolutely. Um, and not only, you know, not only was, were you listening to the music, but again, you were sort of, you know, aspiring in a way to kind of wanting to own this album. Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'd be thinking about, God, what's my mum going to say when I take this White Snake album home? Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause some of those covers were a little bit near the mark. Yeah. And, <laughs> or, um, spinal tap, smell the glove. <laughs> I don't think I ever had that. <laughs> um, but we don't get that now. I mean, you decide that you're going to buy the latest, I don't know, the latest Blake Shelton or Casey Musgraves album. You decide that you're going to want it. And, you know, the artwork is kind of incidental. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe there's just. Which a, is sad. Which is sad. We don't have that kind of, it's not playing that supporting role anymore. But, you know, what's, what's interesting um, about this is, I mean, you could, you could apply this same conversation to music, to film, to, um, apps that you buy, um, all things like that. You, 
I, I feel like we have lost the ability, not ability, we have lost the option to yearn for these things. What I mean by that is this, exactly what you said. You want a particular album, whether it's obscure or whether it is very popular, you can get it pretty much immediately. You just log on, download it, it's yours. You don't yearn, you don't look forward to getting that. You don't go, um, I guess you could argue, well, this is something to do with money. But let's say, for example, when we were kids, you'd go, oh, in in two weeks' time, I'm going to get that album. And you would look forward to it. And that looking forward to it would heighten your desire and your excitement. And, And now I feel that, those kind of things have disappeared. And the only things that you can get that same kind of uh, emotion or feeling towards are major events such as holidays, birthdays, Christmas, things like that, because you do have to wait for those. Those are things that will wait. I guess maybe you could, you could say, well, no, no, you could, you would look forward to a concert that is going to happen next year, for example, if you went. But we're talking more about consumable um, media. And I think because of the digital era, uh, era, sorry, and the the a the ability to get things immediately, we lose some of that lovely, touchy feely kind of uh, um, anticipation. Yeah, anticipation is so much part of the experience, mm. or certainly used to be. See, Apple are very clever at that. You know, it's interesting because they do both hardware and software. Yet what they do is they leak, 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 and go, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And therefore, there is a desire. So I guess even though we are in that digital era where most things are immediate, you could market your product cleverly and and still create a desire for it. It's interesting. Hold that thought, because I just want to talk about our second sponsor, Mm -hmm. which is Ghost Lab. Yeah, I like this. And if you're a designer or a developer who makes websites, and who isn't these days, Ghost Lab is a synchronized cross-browser and mobile testing that's taken to the next level. So here's the problem. You're designing or developing a site that you need to test across multiple browsers and especially many different devices like smartphones and tablets. Now, you could set up a local development server or you could FTP to an external server, but no one wants to do that. Then there's keeping all the devices in sync while you test, moving around a site using the navigation, maybe filling in forms. You need three pairs of hands, but that's where Ghost Lab comes in because it synchronizes everything across different browsers and devices. And as you do something in one browser or on one device, it happens across all the others instantly. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you click a link in a desktop browser and it gets pressed on a smartphone. And then you type into a form input on a tablet and it gets filled in across every browser or device that's connected to Ghost Lab. And here's how it works. You install the Ghost Lab app on your Mac and then you drag any HTML site into the Ghost Lab window. And that's it. Ghost Lab does everything else for you. And from there, you can open your site in any installed browser or you can point any device that's on the same network to the Ghost Lab IP address. And the great part is that Ghost Lab is not an app that you have to install on those devices. It just uses the browser. And Ghost Lab keeps a watch on the project and it pushes any changes that you make to a connected browser or device. And that makes designing using code, HTML, CSS, JavaScript really simple. And Ghost Lab is not a subscription service. Woohoo! You don't Mm -hmm. have to pay monthly for the software. You just buy it once. Ghost Lab costs 33 of our English pounds or Scottish pounds, or Welsh pounds, or Northern Irish pounds per user. And you can install it on two computers, like a laptop and a desktop. And that's what I do. And there are volume discounts available too. So go to unfinished.bz slash ghost lab and get ghost lab. It is great. By the way, it is great. I've seen it working and I'm very impressed with it. Just looking at the website, there's a there's a, a very good looking gentleman on there that said it's brilliant, it's genius. I love it. I demonstrated Ghost Lab, and the client melted. I think I said that. Yeah, I'm looking at you. Oh. <laughs> now you were talking about desirability, which yes, of course, 
talking about pictures of me on the Ghost Lab website is exactly the segue that I was thinking of. <laughs> um, but this whole kind of anticipation and desirability, and Apple do do it well in the, mm. um, you know, they do leak certain things. They, they keep control of the conversation. They don't mm. let conversations um, spiral out of control. Mm-hmm. So they do do strategic leaks here and there. Mm. Um, so you, you'll know that a product is coming. Mm. You know, we, we didn't know about the watch, for example, even mm. though we didn't have any specific details about the watch. And that help, does help to build desirability and anticipation. But mm. they do it really, really cleverly so that, for example, they can release or they can do an event back in, when was it, November, that talks about the watch, even though it's not coming out until next year. But yeah. they're clever because they know that announcing it so early is not going to cannibalize the sales of yeah. another product. So mm-hmm. they're quite safe. It's like the first iPhone. They announced it in June. And it didn't come out until, you know, later in the year. Yeah. Because there wasn't another iPhone that people could have been buying at that point. Mm-hmm. Whereas, God, you look at some manufacturers, you know, you look at HP or Dell or Samsung or all these others and you know, they leak and they release things so early that mm. they don't quite understand. Ah, oh, that's going to stop me from buying a, you know, a new device. Yeah. So I think Apple do it incredibly well. Yeah. I think they're probably about the only company that I would think of that kind of builds desire in a new product. But I suppose that's because this is the kind of area of the market that I pay attention to. I'm sure that there are people that, that buy drones or buy cars mm. or buy golf clubs or yeah. something like that, that would be equally as excited about a pair of golf clubs. Mm. Do they come in pairs? No, they don't. You see, I'm pretty much I know no, about golf. No, they don't. Knob all about golf. Going back to movies and the immediacy of movies, for example, uh, I would be very interested to know the, the model that the movie companies work on, because in the old days where there was no uh, digital distribution or, you know, as you say, you, you'd have to borrow it on VHS or there was a big delay between the movie being released at the cinema and when you actually got it at home. You know, do bums on seats in a cinema equate to a greater um, profit for them than, say, I don't know, digital distribution does? Or is it just, I mean, certainly, I guess you have to go with the times and that's what people demand now. You know, we, we stream everything or, you know, we record it on the Skybox or we, we record, we, we have a movie that we rip to our hard drive and then use Roku or something to watch it on the TV. You know, I guess we want that immediacy. But it's interesting how the music industry and the film industry must have changed over the years because they had so much control in the old days. This is when it's being released and we are not doing anything with it until it's been around the world to all these different cinemas. I guess that was one of the only places you could go and see it. You couldn't really see it at home, could you? So, And also we used to wait. I mean, things used to come out in the States a lot earlier than they came out, you know, yeah. a year or six months earlier than they came out in the UK, I suppose, because people weren't traveling. You know, yeah. You weren't able to nip to New York and see it. Yeah. So, I think that the the whole film landscape, the film industry landscape, has just changed so much. Um, but I wonder what at what point that happened. I mean, they had region protection on DVDs, for example. Mm. So you know that would stop you from importing. Uh, although I I had multi region DVD players. Mm-hmm, me too. But it was for generally for normal people not to import uh, import region one. DVDs from the US. But even so, I don't know whether they came out quite as quickly as they came out now. Mm. I think it's only really been in the last, what, five or six years, I suppose. I mean, I, I suppose, thinking about it, I can remember watching the first Lord of the Rings trilogy at the cinema in December and then not having it on DVD until the following November. Right. So it just came out before the next film in the trilogy would come out in the cinema. I'm sure you have, like we have, we've got a big plasma TV and 
I mean, bigger than I could ever imagine as a kid you'd have a TV. And the quality is absolutely fantastic. But still, we will cherry pick which films we will see at the cinema. Because apart from, you know, say, for instance, watching Gravity, for example, at the cinema, being, you know, a you've got to do this experience, it's just... It's not just the screen, the sound, and all of those ingredients that the the cinema is invested in. It's the the fact that you're going somewhere. You're going to get in the car. You're going to drive there. You're going to park, pay for parking, wander to the cinema with your kids or, or your uh, partner or whatever it is, and you sit in the cinema. Oh, sorry, before you do that, you you may decide to go and get some... Ben and Jerry's, which cost you more than the cinema ticket. And then you go and sit in this dark room to watch it. I think going to the cinema is a whole experience. It's not just the movie and the sound, you know. And so even so, even though we've got this wonderful TV and, and great quality at home, I think it's important to actually go to the cinema every now and then, you know, just for that experience, especially if you've got young ones. Oh, absolutely. We've got, a local, it's called the little Scala Cinema in Prostatin. And it was the first digital cinema in, I think it was the whole of Wales, let alone just North Wales. Um, and the sound quality, the picture quality is amazing. There's not that many seats. I think there's probably about 60 seats. That's the biggest mm. auditorium. And it's, I love supporting that little cinema. Yeah. It's a shame yeah. that they don't have something like, uh, for example, Interstellar, because I, I missed that. Uh, when it first came out, but they, they never get the films when they first come out, uh, because it costs a lot more money to, to get that. So I was looking the other day and it's not on and I can't see it coming to the Scala and Prostatin, but you know, if I wanted to, I'd have to go to like a view or a Sydney world or somewhere like that. Um, and I kind of resent that a little bit, even though it's yeah, part of the too. movie experience. Um, you know, the fact that I feel like they've kind of homogenized the whole experience, you know, in a way. Yeah. And I've been yeah. to some really, really fantastic cinemas around the world. Uh, the Alamo draft house in Austin, Texas. If you ever get a chance to go and see a film there, it is quite something. Mm. Uh, I mean, the seats are reasonably comfortable, but you've got this bench in front of you. You've got like this wooden bench and it's got like a little, uh, light and a, and a button that you can press. And, you can a pen and a, and a pen and a, a piece of paper in front of you mm. and you can write down your order for beer or burger or chicken or something. Oh, really? And yeah. then when you press the light, the lady will come and, uh, and take your order. And then, you know, 10 minutes later or something while the film's going on, I remember seeing Spider-Man there a couple of years ago, they'll come and bring you a proper beer. Yeah. Well, it's proper beer as Americans ever drink yeah. and, and a burger. And I love that. It was just so amazing. And I just wish that we had more of an opportunity to, to have those kind of, I don't know, individual cinema experiences. There's a very similar, um, cinema. My, my, I was working in St. Anton in Austria, uh, in a ski season and my wife was working in Zermatt and in Zermatt, they have a cinema called the Vernissage. Um, and this guy, he's like the son of a millionaire. He's, he's, he got a load of, load of money that he decided to invest in his passion, which was cinema. So you walk into this place, uh, on ground level and it's a kind of, it looks like a bar with big glass wall. And as you go to approach the glass wall, you're looking down a floor. So it's like double height. If you, if you imagine that and where you're looking is actually the cinema floor. And what he's done is he's bought the oldest cinema projector you can ever imagine and ripped out the guts and replaced them with digital inside. And then what happens is you go in, you have your, you grab your drink, walk downstairs and then electronically curtains close behind this glass wall so that people in the bar don't see the film. And also you don't get any light um, bleed from the, from the room above. And you sit down there very much like a, a kind of, cocktail bar where you've got your own little tables and so forth and just much like you described the austin texas one you can have beer in there sit back put your feet up it is just the most ex wonderful experience but you know what's great about what you described and the vernissage is that you won't forget that 
And whenever you talk to someone about the best cinema you've been to, that will be top of your list. And I think that those kind of things are so few and far between. There's a great opportunity for someone there. Well, I will always remember going to that one particular thing. I mean, I don't think that Spider-Man was a great film, but it was a great experience. Absolutely. And I think Jeremy Keith has talked about a cinema that he goes to in Brighton where you can take a beer in or, you know, you can, you can buy a beer in there. Mm. And the film is going to be the same wherever you see it. You know, it's going to be the same at the Scala as it is in the Alamo Draft House or, you know, the local Odeon or do they still go Odeons? Yes. I think yes. So. Yeah, absolutely. We've got one in Epsom. And the film's going to be exactly the same, but the experience of going, you know, not just the fact that some noisy kids are sitting behind you distracting you because, you know, you're going to get that everywhere. Mm. But the fact that the experience has kind of been, oh, and I hate to say designed because we're going to get into this whole kind of user experience design thing again. Mm. People are going to send me letters. <laughs> But it makes something memorable. You know, it's not just about the thing that you're buying. It's about how you're buying it. You know, we, we miss out on that. I'm sure we do. Or, or are it's, we just being sentimental? Well, that, that's the interesting thing. Yes, you could say we're being sentimental. But I think, okay, look, so we have the benefit of immediacy. And that is a benefit. Great. It doesn't help promote anticipation. It doesn't help promote excitement. And the, the, I think the things that are missing are things like the sleeve notes, for example, on, a, on an album. Um, how do you overcome that? I don't know. Can you only have one or the other? I don't know. I mean, we had a, a, a girl called uh, Kate Moross come and speak at um, Reasons to be Creative this year. And she ha- she created her own record label and started to bring back vinyl. Um, I don't think it financially it was great because after a, a year or two, she canned it. But that to me is exciting. The idea that you are starting to create record sleeves and so forth in, in the modern era now is great. I don't know. Maybe... You know, maybe we should be able to download the thing and then they send us a sleeve note. What do you think of that? I don't know. I don't know. I think that maybe there is even a market for, uh, God, I was going to say like an aftermarket sleeve in a way. Yeah. I'm thinking about some of our friends. I'm thinking about people like, uh, Elliot J. Stocks, who, Mm -hmm. you know, lovely kind of independent publisher. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and we talked last week about Andy McMillan and his manual and, uh, you know, these kind of magazine publications that I don't always read, but I tend to buy them just because mm. I like to, you know, I like to have something that's been not necessarily handmade, but something that's a little bit different from what you're going to buy in WH Smith. Yeah. So maybe there's a market for somebody to make little booklets mm. or magazines or something that you can buy to accompany the experience of listening to an album, even if, you know, after you bought it. It'd be a great value add. I think so. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be the labels that are doing it, although I'm sure you get in trouble if, if it was somebody independent, but why, why can it not be fan produced? You know, why can it not be kind of fan fiction? Yeah. I think that there's an opportunity and, you know, maybe you just go back and I was watching uh, a little bit of classic albums on, tv last night it was machine head from deep purple <laughs> which i do have on vinyl do you somewhere on the shelf downstairs you know i bet that most people listening to this if you know if they didn't buy machine head on vinyl then you know they're going to have it digitally but it's in some form or another so what about all that kind of backstory? What about all those notes? Not just the notes that came with it on vinyl, but a whole kind of like almost like a, a version of classic albums on paper that you could read while you listen to the album. Mm. Be great. Well, also, you know, that like you, like you say, you've, you've got the original on vinyl. They've got it downloaded digitally. So they don't have that great, I'm, I'm looking at the sleeve now where it looks like the, the words Deep Purple and Me- Machine Head have been banged into them with a hammer and chisel. You know, you, that experience is not the same, you know. So 
I prefer. I would prefer to be able to. If if Joe hadn't told me to get rid of all my vinyl because it was just clogging up the house and we haven't got a record player, I I would have kept it all. You know, I loved all that stuff. Well, I've still got a few. I regret bitterly we shared a house in Nottingham oh, years after I left college, and I had a lot of vinyl at that point. And I remember there was this guy that. Uh, we shared the flat with, um, who was a bit of a kind of a heavy metal fan. And I basically said, Oh, do you know what? I don't think I'm ever going to listen to half of these records again. Um, you know, you can just take what you want. Mm. And I so regret that now because I've ended up buying most of them again yeah. on digitally, um, which has been such a shame. So if you're out there, Jeff, can I have my records back? <laughs> oh, and Jeff's sitting there going, Nope. <laughs> so I suppose. We should wrap it up. Yeah. And where can I get you on Twitter? Uh, you, If you want to get me personally, it's Johnny Belmont. If you want to follow the event, it's Reasons 2. Perfect. And people can follow me. I'm at Malarkey. To ask questions and suggest topics, you can message this show on Twitter at UnfinishedBZ or you can email me, he has at unfinished.bz. Thanks to our sponsors this week. They were Ghost Lab and Gather Content. You can support Unfinished Business by supporting them. And next week is episode 99. Oh. Wow. So I'm speaking to Trent Walton, who's my design hero next week. Oh, great. I'm going to be all gooey and fanboy-like. <laughs> and then the week after that is the 100th, the 100th episode of Unfinished Business. I can't Who's on that quite one? believe. Um, it's a special surprise. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to spoil it. I like the sound of that. But I'm looking forward to it. So thanks, mate.